I want to invite you today to join me in Psalm 103, Psalm 103. Maybe you grew up in a home that was blessed to have a father who was faithful in it, faithful to you, faithful to your family, more importantly, faithful to God. How many grew up in that type of home? How many had uh, the blessing of that role model? Can we thank God for that? Let's celebrate. You should celebrate. Even if they're not here today, celebrate their impact on your life. And certainly if they're alive, they should know how much you love and appreciate and recognize the powerful influence of their faithfulness on your life. But what if you're in another category? What if you're in the category of folks who didn't see that? So much of our culture, so much of this generation is not marked by the faithfulness of men and the faithfulness of dads. It's becoming more and more rare. So much of it is marked by unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness to God, unfaithfulness to us, unfaithfulness to the family. So what do you do in that moment? You know, one of my earliest memories of fatherhood, arguably the earliest memory of fatherhood, was the day that my dad left. Uh, the day that my dad uh, and my mom were getting divorced, my dad, I still remember him after a big argument backing out of the driveway. I'm probably somewhere around five. My brother's about eight. And I remember him backing out of the driveway. I remember him leaving. And I remember the heartache that went along with that and the strain for years on that relationship. And uh, for my mom, it meant that she entered into a season of single motherhood. Now, my mom is a tough woman. She is strong. She relies on God. She comes from a legacy of strong women. So she stepped up to the plate and did what she had to do for her two sons. And she's raising us. But yet, I got to admit, we were on a bad trajectory, my brother and I, as a reflection of the community that we were a part of. We were just a part of a community that was involved in so many unhealthy things. But a few years later, in steps my stepdad. My stepdad comes in, and I, I just want to tell you, we were not happy that he showed up. As a matter of fact, me and my brother had successfully learned how to manipulate my mom, and here he was uh, disrupting everything, and he knew we weren't happy about it. Word got back to him about our murmuring, and I'll never forget, one day he set us down and he said to us these words, he says, I want you to take note of your friends who don't have dads in their lives. And I want you to just think about and make note of where they end up without having a father in the home. And I want you to take note of where you end up with a father in the home. And those words have stuck with me. There's so many things that I've learned so many lessons I've learned from my dad who raised us and who was faithful and modeled so many things for us in the years that were to lie ahead. Now, not having a good and godly dad in the home is not a death sentence. I don't want to communicate that. God has and will continue to show grace to those who call upon his name. So don't think that if you don't have that, you can't make it. By God's grace, you can. But I will say this, having a good and godly father in the home is certainly an accelerant. It speeds up progress. It helps you to mature. It, it helps you to experience your identity in Christ and even more importantly, helps you to know who God is. In the years to come, I have taken note of where so many of my friends ended up who didn't have a dead in the home and by God's grace where my brother and I have ended up because of the influence of God's grace through my dead. 
Today I want to help you to learn some of the lessons that I learned. I remember uh, just three things stuck with me from that quick conversation. Uh, one was the fact that dads make a difference. How many know that? Dads make a difference. I don't know of any other stronger variable. Sociologists, even non-Christian sociologists will tell you there is no greater determining variable of where a person ends up in life than the presence or absence of a father. Second thing that I learned through all of it is that sometimes you got to be what you didn't see. Maybe you didn't see it lived out before you, but that doesn't mean you can't be it. By God's grace, you can, we can be what we didn't see. And then thirdly, and I'm just introducing the, the sermon. I haven't even started preaching yet. Third, thirdly, is it takes a good God to be a good dad. You can't be a good dad without a good God, Amen. So today I want to look at a text that just lays out for us how God shows us how a father cares for his children. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 14 of Psalm 103 to just see how God shows us how a father cares for his children. Look at verse 6. And we see the first attribute of how God cares for his children. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Jump with me to verse number 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is a picture of how God, our Heavenly Father, goes about caring for his children. Now, I've heard probably a hundred times from good Christian women, please don't preach Proverbs 31 on Mother's Day. I'm so tired of this picture of this impossible woman that no one could ever become. But I want you to know, ladies, on Father's Day, all of us as men get to be compared to how God fathers. So that's the uh, standard we got to live up to. Imagine that bar. Now, here's the reality is that what the scriptures intend to do over and again is to bring us to Jesus. But in order to bring us to Jesus, the scriptures have to bring us to the end of ourselves. So when we're reading Scripture, one of the ways we know we're reading Scripture the right way is when we walk away saying, I can't do this. And that's, the good, that's right. That's a good place to be. You cannot do this. I cannot do this apart from the grace of God. But here's the good news. A good God has made his good grace available to us through Jesus Christ. And all we have to do is accept his good gift of salvation. Amen? And so we see the first thing in verse number uh, six. I want you to see how the text progresses here. In verse number six, we see God works. That a good father works for the benefit of his children. That God works, that he is constantly working. And what is he working to do? He's working righteousness and justice for his children who are oppressed, mistreated, who are suffering. God is always working and intervening and caring and thinking about ways that he can bring about our deliverance, our comfort, and our salvation. Good fathers are working for the benefit of their children. 
Now, some may argue that maybe you're working too much, and, and there is a balance there, but there should always be this sense of how can I work to benefit my family, to benefit my children, to benefit my family as much as I can. That's what a good father does. That's what our heavenly father does. He is constantly working. Even when you cannot see him working, he is at work. He is always up to 10,000 things to bless you, to bring about your salvation and to bring about your joy and your freedom. But a good father doesn't just work, but if verse number seven is right, a good father is not only always working, but always teaching, always instructing. Notice what it says in verse number seven. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. God not only did good, but he explained why he did good and how he did good to Israel. That's what our Old Testament codifies for us. And later the New Testament affirms and illuminates for us. And a good father is not just doing and working. He is explaining the why behind the what. And sometimes he explains that with words. But most often he explains that with actions. And the big question of our lives, those who have had the blessing of a father in their lives that is taught through his actions and through his words is, are we listening? Are we paying attention to the life lessons? As you get older, hopefully you come to realize, hey, Pops wasn't that crazy after all. As you get older, hopefully you come to realize, oh, that's what he was trying to communicate. That's why he challenged me then or lectured me. You know, it's part of our birthright as dads to lecture kids. That's part of what comes along with the job. But, but it's all for your good because lessons learned today will pay dividends tomorrow. Our Heavenly Father is always instructing, always working. But I want you to notice something. Something happens between verses 7 and 8. Now, it's not recorded in the text, but it's certainly noticed in the shift of the tone in the text. The text shifts from talking about what the Father does for us, for our good, to then referring to how the Father responds to our failures or our mistakes. I posit that between 7 and 8, the inference here of the psalm is that Israel sinned, which was their pattern. God would work for their good, God would instruct them, and then Israel would rebel as uh, his chosen child would rebel. And let me just tell you, nothing breaks the heart of a father more than to know you're working hard for the good of your family, know you're doing your best to instruct them in the way of the Lord, only to watch them rebel and to turn away from it. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest gifts you can give for dad today is simply obedience to the Lord. Never forget that. Following the lessons that have been instilled, just being able to say, I 
get it. I finally get it. That is such an amazing gift. I'll never forget a couple uh, Mother's Day. This is a Mother's Day. A couple Mother's Days ago, me and my brother were getting a gift from my mom, and, and I decided she's been using a laptop for years. I think her laptop was like the original laptop. She had been using it forever. So I said, I'm going to get her a new one with all these bells and whistles, spent all this money, gave it to her. She gives me a hug. Oh, sweetie, I love you. You did a great job. Thank you. My brother gives her a card. And in the card, he writes, Mom, I finally get it. All that you've done. She's weeping and crying. This is the greatest gift I've ever received. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I could have saved all this money. But, but it, was, it was just the fact that you get it. That's what parents want. It's for you to get it. But so often the nation of Israel rebelled against God. But how did he respond to their sin, to their failure? Verse number 8 tells us how he responded. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Verse number 9, look at this. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Thank God, though, he does get angry at sin, in particular when, when our sins are harms against each other. When we are harming each other, nothing arouses our Heavenly Father's anger and disappointment like when His children are doing great harm to one another. Praise God, His anger doesn't last forever. How many thank God for that? But verse number 10, I'm going to argue, I'm going to argue this, that verse number 10 might be, might just be the sweetest verse in all of Scripture. Now, we can debate this later, but just listen to these words, and you tell me if they are not praiseworthy. You tell me how your soul responds when you hear this. He does not deal with us according to our sin, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Praise God. Praise God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the point of the verse. We don't get what we deserve. I tell my kids all the time, don't ever complain when you say, I'm not getting what I deserve. If you say I don't get what I deserve, at the end of that, make sure you put a thank you at the end of that. Because if we got what we deserve from God, it would be judgment. It would be punishment. What we deserve because of our sin. And I don't know yours, but I know mine well. I know my sins of action, my sins of thought, my sins knowing, my sins of rebellion, not even to count the things that I don't know that I do, that I blow it at all the time. If I were to stand before a holy God, I would be deserving of death, hell, and the grave. But praise be to God that he does not deal with us as our sins deserve. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. Praise God, he is merciful. And as far as the east is from the west, how far is that, friends? 
They are separated eternally. This is how the Father separates us from our sins through Christ, the finished work of the cross applied by the Spirit to my life upon faith in him. Thank God he gives me grace and mercy instead of judgment and sin. All of it, all of it. Because he is kind. And, and, the, and the painful question of the text is, Chris, are you this type of father? I talk to you about books that I read often, and uh, some of them are mild, others are dangerous. One of the most dangerous books that ever came across my desk is not a men's book, it was actually a women's book. I don't know how many of you have ever heard the name of the author, uh, Linda Dillow, but Linda Dillow was a popular author for a long, long time, wrote a number of books. Arguably her most famous book, most impactful book, is a book with this title. Listen to this title, What's It Like to Be Married to Me? Think about that for a moment. You want, you want to get in trouble, ask that question of your spouse. As a matter of fact, you want them to get in trouble. What's it like to be married to me? But, but that question is not confined to marriage, is it? That marriage can be extended. What's it like to be friends with me? Or what's it like to work with me? Or in the context of today's message, what's it like to be parented by me? If you were to take a poll of your children and ask them, am I gracious and merciful? Am I slow to anger, abounding in love? Is, is that me? Is that how you would describe me? And before you feel too guilty, if the answer is no, just know you're a part of the club of humanity. All of us struggle in this area. And that's why it takes a good God to be a good dad. You can't achieve these things on your own, but by God's grace, we can. And thank God, grace has come because Christ has come. Next thing we see in the B part of verse number eight, we just read it, is not only are we the beneficiaries of his mercy, but we also are the focus of his love. Look at what it says in the B part of verse 8. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Not just love, but steadfast love. That's a, that's a descriptor of a, of a particular type of love. Verse number 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his, again, steadfast love towards those who fear him. Again, twice he talks about this type of love, steadfast love. I wrote down this definition. What is steadfast love? It is a patient love. It is a never giving up type of love. It's an I got your back kind of love. And here's my note. It's a Finding Nemo type of love. Anybody ever seen Finding Nemo? Right. Greatest fatherhood movie Ever Again, I'll debate that with you in the lobby as well. If you like to, I can make a strong case for it. Here you have this fish, uh, uh, Nemo, little fish, gets, loses his way, wants to conquer the world, way too young, way too dumb, just like most kids. And so he goes out, and then his dead marlin goes chasing after him. Now, up until this morning, I thought they were both goldfish, and I said that at 8.15, and then a guy came up to me as serious as could be and said, no, he was a clownfish. Fix that by 10 a.m. And so I'm fixing that. I'm fixing that. It's clownfish, not a goldfish. I don't want to 
blow that, right? <laughs> I get a lot of feedback, but anyway. Anyway, so, um, you, and Dory steals the show. You know the whole thing, right? But the beauty of finding Nemo is that dad never gives up, keeps chasing and keeps pursuing and keeps going after Nemo until he finds him and protects him and restores him. And this is the father's love for us. This is the steadfast love that he has for us. Many of you will not know the name Albert Barnes, but he was an 18th century theologian. And he says this, he says, the heavens are the highest object of which we have knowledge. And hence, the uh, comparison here is used to demonstrate the great love of God, that it is the greatest conceivable love that men can know. In other words, that the heavens are the highest conceivable object that we can know. And by saying in verse number 11 that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. What he is saying is think of the greatest conceivable love you can imagine. And that is, even beyond that, is how great I love you. I'll never forget sitting in an adoption conference. Uh, my wife and I, uh, privileged to be the proud parents of three adopted kids, three biological kids, uh, but we were sitting in an adoption conference and one speaker stood up and said this, that every child deserves at least one person in their lives that will love them with an irrational love, a love that goes beyond reason. A love that says, I've done the math and the calculation and supporting you and caring for you at this point is going to cost me a lot, but I'm still going to do it. This is a type of love that God loves us with. His love was a very costly love. It drove Jesus to the cross. It went beyond the rational calculations. But every child deserves at least one person in their lives that will defy everyone else's advice that says, you would be justified in washing your hands of them. I would understand if you turned your back on them. You have already paid too high of a price. You should just throw in the towel. But praise God for those dads and moms and parents and people in our lives that in spite of how much we pushed them away or rebelled against what was right, in spite of how much it cost them, they kept on loving us. This is the steadfast love of God. And this is the love that parents have when God has penetrated their hearts. It takes an irrational love to change diapers. I'm telling you, it does. <laughs> takes an irrational love to survive the teen years. Can I get an amen? amen? Takes an irrational love to stand by your child's side when they're experiencing the consequences of all the things you told them they were going to experience. And they told you, you don't get it, I know. 
But yet this is the ministry that we've been called to. Why? Because this is what we've been a recipient of. He continues to love us, not seven times, seven times, but 70 times, seven times. Not the number, but the inference is an unlimited, infinite love forgives again and again and again and again. And how many are grateful that that's how he loves us? I want to end with verse number 30, uh, I'm sorry, verses 13 and 14 to help you to know that we are the recipients of his compassion. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The word passion is a Latin word that means to suffer. Compassion means to suffer with. God suffers with us. He enters into our suffering. This is what a good father does is enter into the suffering of their children with them to remind them you are not alone. I am here with you. But why does God show us such great mercy? Verse number 14, some of the sweetest words ever written in humanity. Why? Because he knows our frame. God knows our frame. To know our frame is to imply that he knows our weaknesses, but also that he knows our great potential. I was in second grade and um, I, was, um, I was just a rebellious kid. I was in second grade and uh, I was a disruptive kid. And I remember um, my teachers calling my parents and saying, we wanna hold Chris back a year. Uh, number one, he's, he, he can't stop talking, and, and I don't know where they got that from. He can't stop talking, right? He's totally disruptive in school. Number two, his grades are not good. We don't think he's socially mature enough to go on to the next grade. We don't think that he is uh, academically sharp enough to go on to the next grade. We got concerns. We want to hold him back. And I remember my parents who knew my frame entering into the picture and saying, we respect your opinion on our son, but we see a more complete picture. And um, they said, we're gonna take him out of school. We'll put him into, they put me into a local Christian school. I took off from there, was able to uh, graduate high school at 16, go on to college, um, serve the Lord and a number of different things. And I say that not to my credit, but to theirs, because had they not fought for me in that moment, I don't know where I would have ended up. I'm the benefactor of parents who knew my frame. The Bible says that when Moses' mom saw him, she saw that he was a special child and she hid him. My prayer for the parents in the room today is that God would anoint your eyes. That when you look at your children, no matter what age or what stage, that you would not see them as everyone else sees them, but that you would see them through the eyes of God, that you would know their frame. Yes, their weaknesses, but also their great potential. We're going to close in worship. I'm going to invite you to stand as the worship team comes out. But I said throughout this message that can't be a good day without a good God. Maybe you've gathered in here today and 
you've known the love of a good God. Praise God for that. I want you to tell the world about his love and invite others to experience it. But maybe today is the day of salvation for you. Maybe today you recognize I need that love. I need God to put my life back together again.